Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor here, and I want to invite you to grab your bulletins if you want to take notes. The verses, that, a couple of the verses we're going to be looking at today are in the bulletin. Uh, you can take notes in there too. We are in a series called Enjoy Sex, Money, Power, and the Goodness of God. And uh, we've talked about money, we've talked about power. Now let's talk about sex. Um, I want to say, yeah, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to sing, although I could, I looked up the video and not a bad idea in the video, but, um, I want to say that I'm heavily dependent on some resources and just at the outset, there's a book by Rob Bell called Sex God that I think is incredibly stimulating. And yes, I say that unintentionally, um, on the subject of the interconnections between God and sex, spirituality and sexuality that, uh, I think is really helpful for me. Um, he believes a lot of things that are outside of the pale of what most Christian churches um, would believe, but the book was very helpful. Um, I'm going to quote from this book called Pornland. Uh, the subtitle is How Porn Has Hijacked Our Sexuality. Uh, this was an incredibly um, eye-opening book for me. I mean, I've dealt with porn personally. I've struggled with porn. I've tried to get free from porn. Um, this book more than any other book I've ever read, exposes what porn actually does to recondition our psychology as human beings. Um, it's incredibly graphic, so I'd caution you on that, but uh, it, it's, it dives into a particular portion of porn that's very violent, and, um, but it was incredibly helpful. So, Pornland, and then uh, Tim Keller's book called Counterfeit Gods has a wonderful chapter on love and relationships and sex that I'll also quote But uh, these are just three books that um, I think were helpful for me as I uh, as I preach on this, as I study this, but also as I try to live out what does it look like to honor God and to experience sex, to enjoy sex and the goodness of God at the same time. Um, I want to say at the outset that today I am just going to scratch the surface of this topic. Um, We are an incredibly diverse bunch gathered here. Um, Some of you are so young, you don't even really know a whole lot about sex. Um, Others of you know exactly what sex is, and your bodies are raging with fire, and you can't or you don't want to do anything about it, and yet you struggle to not do anything about it. Um, Others of you are married, and you are over sex. You've had so much sex, you're like, eh, sex, take it, leave it, it's not a big deal. Um, uh, If you only knew, Bill, if you only knew. Um, So um, I want to say that some of you, biblically speaking, hear me now, some of you, biblically speaking, are not having enough sex. Okay? You're not having enough sex. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Some of you are having too much sex. Um, And some of you are, let's just say, some of you are enslaved to pornography. I have been enslaved to pornography in the past. Some of you are unable to be happy or content unless you're in a romantic relationship. Okay, all of these things are things that we deal with when we're talking about sex. Um, and I would say, so, so you, y'all are incredibly different. And as I think about who you are, I have different messages for each one of you, depending on if you're single or married, depending on if you're married for a short time or a long time, depending on if you want to be married and you're not, or if you don't want to be married and you're not. I mean, there's so many different ways this can go. We probably ought to do a series on sex. We should. We probably will at some point. 
But here is one thing that is true for all of us. Okay, here's one thing that applies to all of us. And that's this. All of us need to have our minds renewed by what the Bible says about sex. Okay, all of us um, need to understand the glory and the purpose and God's vision for sex. Okay, Um, so much more needs to be said than what I'm going to say today. This should begin conversations in our family here in the church, not end the conversation. Okay, sex is like a diamond. It's got all kinds of facets, and it's incredibly beautiful and glorious, especially when it's held up to the light of God and his presence and his word. Um, But just like diamonds, diamonds are incredibly hard, uh, and they can cut deeply. Um, Sex is like that as well. Sex is like a beautiful rose that also has thorns. And, and the reason that all of us need to hear God's design for sex is because the world outside, the world out there, the world that we are for, the world that we love, the world that we want to enjoy is constantly talking about sex. And it's constantly lying to us about sex. Okay? So much of the trouble that we have with sex, both inside of marriages and outside of marriages, is because we are slowly and consistently being poisoned in our hearts and our minds by the lies that we're being exposed to in our culture. Okay, we are shown things, we are taught things, we are made to feel things, we are emotionally tied to stories about sex that are actually destructive for us. Okay, this is why it's so important. And so today what we're going to try to look at, relatively simply, we're going to look at God's design for sex, how we vandalize God's design, how Jesus can, can, can set us free, and then how we can be renewed. Okay, so it's sort of creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. That's what we're going to do today as we look at this idea of sex. And so what I want to do is I want to start with God's design. In the very beginning of the Bible, um, if you want to know where sex came from, God invented it. So there are some people, we'll talk a little bit more about them, who think that sex is dirty, they think that sex is wrong, they think it's sort of this necessary evil because we've got to have kids somehow, so we might as well do this, but don't enjoy it, right? You're not there to enjoy yourselves, you're there just to have babies, right? There are people who think this way, that is not biblical, that is not God's design. In Genesis chapter 2, it's in your bulletin, uh, verse 24, it says this, uh, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so God was the one who invented sex. God was the one who designed sex. God is the one who put all of the nerve endings in the right places, in the right concentration, so that when people have sex, it brings pleasure. Okay, this wasn't, uh, this is God's design. God didn't have to do it this way. But God chose to create this sex act, and he chose to make this act not just physically pleasurable, but when we look and see what the design is that's in these two verses, we're going to see that actually sex is this amazing sort of culmination and climax of, rela- of the deepest and most intimate relationship possible for human beings. Okay, that's God's design. So I just want you to see a couple of phrases here. Um, first, look at the phrase in verse 24, hold fast. Okay, holding fast. What this is speaking of, um, while you could actually think about this in a sexual way, this is actually, I think, talking about the marriage commitment. 
Okay, because what it's saying is a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. In the old translation, they use the word cleave. And so there's this phrase that if you've been in the church for a long time, you might have heard this, sort of this idea of leaving and cleaving, right? Because if it rhymes, you can remember it. So that's what people are supposed to do. When you get married, you leave your household. You leave your parents. You are no longer under their authority. You begin a new family with a new authority where you now, as a married person with your spouse, um, are, uh, are new or a new family, and so you are under your own authority. So you leave your parents' authority, and you hold fast to each other. And so what this is, this is, this is marriage, okay? And this is the commitment that, uh, that comes before sex, okay? Um, because in verse 25, we see that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so what we have here, this is full-blown acceptance, Right? This is total exposure and vulnerability. Right? Think about what it means to be naked and unashamed in front of somebody else. Um, this is sort of the goal for marriage. Right? The goal for marriage is that you would be completely open where there would be nothing hidden, uh, where you would be totally known and not ashamed. Most marriages I know don't achieve this. Uh, most people that want very much to follow Jesus even and want to follow God's design for marriage don't live in this reality where they're naked and they're unashamed. Um, and so this is difficult enough in marriage. Um, and the pattern here, God's design, is that the way that you can feel completely vulnerable and not ashamed the way that you can feel completely open and honest without fear is if someone has committed themselves, body and soul, to you forever. This is God's design, that sex is actually designed to be the ultimate physical expression of the marriage commitment. Right? You see how these things go together? In order, I mean, another way to say it is that God would say, in order for you to have that much access, you have to earn the right to have total access to another person. And the way that you earn that right is by committing yourself, by being someone who's committed to saying to this other person, I'm going to love, I'm going to serve, and I'm going to cherish you as long as we both shall live. Because without that commitment, there is no way I will not hold back. Without that commitment from you, without the assurance that you are with me, that you know me, and that you're going to accept me exactly as I am, I'll always be holding back. I'll always be afraid to show you everything that's in my heart. And so what we see here, this idea of holding fast, this is the commitment that earns the access. This is the commitment, the love the, the, the committed love, that covenant that gets made uh, at the marriage, you know, in the marriage ceremony. Um, and within this, within this, so you have the ultimate commitment, which gives you the ultimate access. And what do people do? Well, they become one flesh. They become one flesh. And so God's design 
is that in marriage you have total intimacy. You have total intimacy. That two people become one. I mean, we feel disconnected so often in life, don't we? I mean, think about the big picture of your life. Think about all the relationship struggles that you have, right? It could be family members. It could be friendships. It could be work relationships, right? You kind of feel like you're always, like you don't have this sort of naked and unashamedness with just about anybody, right? It's so easy to hurt people's feelings. It's so easy to do things that are wrong. And yet sex is designed by God. Marriage, in a sense, is designed by God to actually show us what's possible with him. Like this one flesh nature, this one flesh union that happens um, or is designed to happen by God is designed to show us that, man, God's heart is that we not be disconnected. That in a world where we're disconnected, this is one relationship that can be your strength, that can be your support, where someone knows you and loves you as you are. And so God's design is a call to total intimacy. Sex is designed, and it makes sense now, right? If you think about what is sex physically, well, it's the physical expression of this complete and total commitment. And this is why sex is designed for marriage. This is why it fits. This is why it's God's gift. God designed it so that two people who are willing to commit this much to each other, who are willing to make the total commitment, they get total access and all of the benefits that come from that access. And so God's design is that marriage would be a relationship that is full, that where, where real community exists, where there's real acceptance, there's real openness, there's safe vulnerability. Right? It's this oneness that creates this joint sense of mission. Right? Where now these two people are going to engage life Right? They're going to live on mission together. And for some, that'll mean having children that will then uh, expand that mission. And so this is why in Hebrews 13, verse 4, it says this. I'll put it up here on the screen. It says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And so this is a statement about, about married sex, that it is undefiled. There are people, we'll talk a little bit more about them, that think that sex is dirty, they think that sex is wrong, they think that sex is, well, hold on a second, well, you can maybe do this, but you can't do this, you can't do this. No, no, this is a statement that says that what two married people do in the privacy of their own bedroom, and as long as they are loving each other and serving each other's needs, it is undefiled. It is holy. It is honoring to God. And it's an expression of the union, the intimacy, and the love that God wants marriage to be characterized by. So last week, Jim Hopkins talked about food, and he talked about something that his son, Jake, at 11 years old, said when I asked him, Jake, why are you here? Like, what, what's our purpose in life? And Jake's answer had nothing to do with sex, but I think his answer applies to sex. He said that... God's design is that we serve God and have fun. That's what sex is. Sex is an opportunity for you to serve God and have fun. And it's important for us as Christians, it's important for us as a church 
to make sure that God, like that we have a pro-sex view, that we're willing to talk about sex, how good and glorious and wonderful it is. Um, because if we don't talk about that, we come across thinking that sex is bad, it's dirty, it's not something that we can talk about, and we do that to our own destruction. And so this is God's design. This is what the Bible teaches, and frankly, it brings joy. It brings joy. And so um, what I want to talk about next is how we then have responded to God's design. Okay, We have not honored the design of God when it comes to sex. Our world, our culture, our city, ourselves, right? Um, we've fallen so far short of that. And we've framed this whole series out with the story of the prodigal son from Jesus in Luke 15, right? This is a father who had two sons and both of them were far from their father. Both of them were wrong in the way they lived their lives, but they were wrong in radically different ways. Um, and, uh, and so for the younger brother, he asked for his inheritance and then he went off and squandered it in riotous living, right? I'm sure that he had all kinds of, of, of crazy sex. Um, and when it comes to sex, younger brother approaches to sex would be the kind of person who says, look, I don't care what anyone else says. I don't care about the rules. I'm going to do it my way. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. If everyone else is doing it, what's the big deal? God, your restrictions show me that you're a killjoy, you're outdated, or you just don't understand how difficult it is. Right? This is the pattern of the younger brother who goes out and spends his inheritance. People that, are, that think about sex this way, I think that part of what drives them is that they're afraid of missing out. There's a fear of missing out, that there's something good going on in the world of sex, and I'm not getting any of it, so I'm missing out here. And I'm afraid that my life isn't going to be fulfilling, that I'm not going to be happy if I'm missing out. And so this drive that, uh, you know, for sex causes, these, causes this person to leave the design that God has. Their sexual desires push them to leave God. In a sense, their sexual desires become a form of God because they decide to obey their desires more than God. And so, so there are younger brothers that do this, and there's a, there, you know, the younger brother actually has a younger sister. Um, and I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but I do think that this is characteristic. But the younger brother's younger sister, as the younger brother goes out and, and sows his wild oats, the younger sister sometimes says things like this. You know what? If I don't do this with him, I'm afraid he's going to leave me. And so I have to. Um, if I don't have sex, or if I don't make out with him, if I don't let him put his hands on me, he's not going to stay, and I'm going to lose him. And there are lots of people who are driven by a fear of not being in a relationship. Um, and so her, in a sense, her need for the acceptance of a man drives her to leave God's ways. And so this wrong approach to sex, it's really, it's pursuing access without the commitment, right? If God's design is you commit and then you get access, um, in a huge way, our world is full of the lie that you should be able to pursue access without the commitment. You know, God's design is that sex is the ultimate physical intimacy given as a gift to those who make the ultimate lifelong commitment, but this way, this other way of thinking pursues all the pleasure without the commitment. It's like it takes, it's trying to take God's gift 
without making the commitment, without paying the price. And I think this is seen so clearly in the world of pornography. I mean, we can see it in a stark way there and then apply it even into, re- into a relationship. So with porn and the voyeurism that goes on along with it, where we're undressing other people with our, with our eyes, where we are kind of feasting on them in our minds and our hearts um, in this book, Pornland, um, it's a... Uh, um, it exposes the lies that porn tells us about men and women. And, and um, the men and women in porn, they're not real. Okay? They're not real, and yet they make us think that men and women are like this. Okay? And so just for instance, um, the author says that like in porn, women never say no to anything. Um, women are always ready at a moment's notice for sex. And men in porn are often soulless. Her term, not mine. Um, they use women in any way that they want. And that porn sex is completely devoid of intimacy. It's devoid of intimacy. It's not about making love. It's not about the feelings and emotions that we normally associate um, with healthy sex, where you have connection, empathy, tenderness, caring, affection, these things are replaced in porn by an all-out fulfillment of whatever fantasy the user has. Um, there is sometimes subtly and sometimes overtly just this dominating control on the part of, usually it's the man, um, to get his way and the women are subjected to his every whim. And in porn, most of the women act like they love it. They act like this is right. They act like this is natural. They act like all women are this way or should be this way. And so she says in this book, what troubles many of the men who uh, have problems with pornography is that they actually need to pull up the porn images in their head in order to have sex with their partner. They replay the scenes in their mind. They think about... Um, they think about the things that they've seen when they are with their partners. And so God's design for sex is one flesh, is real intimacy. And yet porn causes people to actually, like you're not even there with the person, you're there with something else. And so the kind of disconnection, the kind of broken relationship that porn actually feeds And so, not only is porn not real, but it's actually less than human. It's less than human um, to pursue porn, but I would say even to pursue sex outside of marriage, uh, you know, and we're talking about a continuum here, where if on a scale of 1 to 10, porn would be, you know, an 8 or a 9, sex outside of marriage in general, you know, it might be like a 4 or a 5, Um, in terms of this, but it it makes you less human. It makes you less the kind of human being that God wants you and has designed you to be. God has designed you for real intimacy, for real relationships and community. God has designed you to actually um, give life in the relationships that you have. And he's designed sex to characterize one relationship. One relationship. 
And so when you, so with porn, um, when you use porn, you are dehumanizing other people. Okay, because you actually dehumanize the object of your lust. You're taking a person who has feelings or, and who has emotions, who has a backstory, who has a life that's actually put them into a place where they are doing whatever it is they're doing, right? And you are treating this person as though they are simply there to be your slave. We feast on images. We use them for our own pleasure. And there is no committed love. There is no relationship. This is what lust does. Lust leads us to stop appreciating the object and we begin to own it. We begin to take control over it. Right? We begin to, we own it. And so lust is us exerting power over the object. God-given love or appreciation, it's us, it's living, like God's design is that we live in a way that honors, respects, and serves the object of our desire. Like honors, respects, and serves the object of our desire, not simply taking it and using it for ourselves. And so lust, porn, sex without commitment, this is dehumanizing the other person. But not only that, it dehumanizes us. And this is a point that I think Rob Bell made so powerfully in his book. Um, lust makes us people who are driven and controlled by our urges and desires. Um, and there is a kind of there's a kind of thing on earth that is driven and controlled by its urges and its desires. Uh, we call them animals. And this is what happens. As we pursue our lust and feed our lust, it continues and continues to control us, and we become more and more like animals. Um, and so it's important for us to ask ourselves, all right, well, so why do we want these things? Like, why do we want things that aren't good for us? Like, where, where does lust come from? And, and to think lust primarily comes initially from a deep dissatisfaction with life. Okay? Our lust comes from being dissatisfied with life because we think, you know what? If I just had him, if I just had her, if I just had that, I would finally be happy. It would finally be enough. I'd be fulfilled. I'd be better. I'd feel relaxed. I'd feel affirmed, whatever. Um, And so when we're not content, we are looking Okay, when we're not happy with the life that we have. And sometimes we have good reasons not to be happy with the life that we have. Sometimes we don't. But when we're not happy with the life that we have, there are these like sensors, these alarms that go on these hooks that you can't see. But And as we walk through life, we begin to see things that are making themselves available to us. We begin to hook into them. It could be people. It could be porn. It could be um, sometimes it's work. Sometimes it's outside of the realm of sex. Um, but, but this is the lure of sex outside of marriage. Um, this is the lure of a, emotional adultery that happens um, between people. Um, it's the lure of connecting with someone and going too far in a dating relationship. Right? If you go too far physically, you can go too far emotionally. Um, and it's because we long to be known and accepted. 
We long to have relationships that are satisfying for us. Oftentimes, we are not content to actually put in the hard work with the relationships that are in front of us. And we would much rather believe the lie that this new person that I've just met can really make me happy. And so the idea, though, that we could touch someone, kiss someone, caress someone, care for someone, and that we could speak in ways that might touch their soul, right? That's so incredibly attractive, right? The idea that you could be really connected, that you could experience one flesh with somebody. This is what causes us to go down down this road. And the question that we need to ask ourselves when it comes to things like lust, we want things that are outside of God's design, we want to ask ourselves, what is this lust promising? Can this lust really deliver on this promise? It's promising connection. It's promising affirmation. It's promising closeness, right? It's saying, you know what? Like, oh man, he or she, like they, they really understand you. Oh, they totally get you. You know what? They really love you. Um, that's what the lust promises. It's, you know, just go ahead and pursue it. It feels right. You're connected. You know you've got a thing. You've got a connection here. You've got to pursue this. But can it really deliver? You can ask people who have gone that route, and they'll tell you that it can't. They'll tell you it could be a day later. It could be a week. It could be months or even a year later they'll find themselves back in the exact same place with the person that they're now with. And now they're discontent again, and they're looking again. And they will look for the rest of their lives, and they'll never find what they're looking for because, it's, because they, they believe the lie that it's somewhere out there. But the issue's in here. You want to ask yourself, wait, wait, is, is my desire here, is my lust here really about something else? Am I discontent with my life? Well, what am I discontent about? Am I happy in my own marriage? Am I happy with my life? Am I mad at God for something? Am I mad at somebody else for something? Right? Sometimes those sorts of discontentments can help us to realize, oh, this is why I really want control. Like I've talked to some guys who say, for me, porn becomes this incredible attraction or sex, pursuing sex with someone becomes this incredible attraction when I feel like I don't have control. Like one guy, every time things went wrong at work, um, he just kind of, and he had never even made the connection, but he's just like, yeah, I don't know. Like I just want control and I know it's sex is good. Sex is fine. I can get it. And so I go pursue it. It's like, oh man, maybe the lust is about something else. And so when we answer these kinds of questions and dive into what is driving us, it can help give us power over that temptation. And so now, in the light of all of this, sort of what the younger brother does, what the younger sister does, the older brother watches this. The older brother is sort of the person who is in the church, has been in the church for their whole life. Um, Go back to the story of the prodigal son. The older brother stayed at home right? He didn't go out and gallivant. He didn't waste his money. He didn't pursue prostitutes and loose living. Um, no, instead he stayed and he did what he was supposed to do, but he had no joy. And his brother comes back and all the older brother does is criticize and judge. The older brother is as lost as the younger brother is. 
Um, and these are people that, that really, like today when it comes to sex, they would say they're so concerned about what's right. They're going to squeeze what is right so strongly. They're going to force everyone else to obey what's right and to hold them accountable and do it in a way that, that realizes sex is so dangerous. It, it maybe not isn't bad or dirty, but it should be avoided. You know what? You can't trust it. Gosh, it's this evil thing. Be careful. Right? And that doesn't reflect God's heart either. Because again, sex is this good gift given to us by God. And so these are the ways that we vandalize God's design for sex. These are some of the things that, and just some of the brokenness that follows from the things that we do, from the ways that we disrupt relationships, ways that we harm and defile marriages. Um, And I want to tell you that Jesus is here today to call you home. That wherever you are, whatever you have done, whatever you haven't done, in whatever way that you have compromised God's design for sex, Jesus is here today to invite you again to come back home. Jesus calls you and wants to restore you. Um, And the good news about Jesus is that you don't have to clean up first. Jesus accepts you just as you are. He forgives you. He cleanses you from all of the things that you've done in the past. He lets you start over. And so Jesus would say, come home, come home in your filthy rags, and I will clothe you with my own purity and my own perfection. You're not perfect, but I'm a savior. I've come to save you and to bring you back. Um, When, like this is the kind of God and savior that he is. Um, He doesn't condemn us. He invites us back. He invites us to start over. Some of you have memories of the past that plague you things that you've done, and periodically they will come up and they will tell you what an awful person you are. And what Jesus does is he says, you know what, that's the person that you were. But I have forgiven you, I've cleansed you, and you are now my child. You're in my family. Um, Jesus would also say to us, Listen, there are loves in this world that cannot meet the deepest need of your heart. But my love can. It is my love and my love only that can cast out your fear of missing out. Um, My love is the only love. A relationship with me is the only relationship that can put that sense of acceptance and affirmation that you are good enough for God in your heart so that you don't have to please anyone else. Jesus, only my love can make you whole. My love will not make you feel cheap or used. My love won't use your fears to manipulate you. I will set you free. And so this is Jesus' message. Um, But I want to remind you of Jesus' own life. 
Okay, I want you to know, I want to remind you of the life that Jesus lived, especially with regard to his sexuality. Um, I've had conversations with several of my gay friends who have come face to face with their own singleness, and they have found Jesus there. Um, in some conversations, um, I've had some of my gay friends come to a place where they said, look, Jesus came and lived a life of sacrifice. That Jesus was God, but he came to earth and became human. And as a human, he lived a life that was completely different from what he felt like he was inside. That Jesus changed his orientation from God to God and human. He lived his whole life denying himself. He kept his godness, for the most part, hidden. He didn't live according to his orientation as God. And again, quoting, I can see now the sacrifice that Jesus is asking me to make about my sexuality. It's the same sacrifice that he himself made for his entire life. That Jesus even denied his own sexual orientation. He was never married. He never had sex. And whether Jesus was gay or straight, he didn't act on any of his sexual desires. He gave up fulfilling those desires. His desires weren't what he lived for. His whole life, all of his desires were second to his mission to serve God. In his life, he brought into a world a love that is stronger than all of our sin. And he was so committed to this, he was even willing to die so that my sinful actions, fulfilling my sinful desires, could be forgiven. And if God is someone willing to sacrifice everything he has to show others just how much he loves them, then I'm in. I'm in. I don't know where it's going to lead, but I'm convinced that if he lived and died for me, then I'll do my best to follow him wherever he leads. And I will do whatever he wants. I'm in. I mean, this is an example for all of us. One of the lies that all of us believe, myself included, is that there is something absolutely essential about sex. That if we don't have it, we're not going to be fully human. And the reality is that the most fully human being who ever walked the face of the earth never had sex. He was a fully human being. Well, he was God. He didn't really get tempted. No, 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 not true. Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are and yet never gave in. And I think that what Jesus had was an understanding of the purpose underneath sex. Jesus understood that sex is about intimacy. It was about community. It was about connection. It was about acceptance. And Jesus had that first and foremost with God himself. And because of that, because Jesus wanted God more than anything else, he could do this. He could live within the parameters of God's design. And so I want to invite you to follow Jesus in this. For some of you, you're already Christians, and so I'm inviting you to follow him in this area of your life. I'm inviting you to open up the closet and let him in and be honest with him about who you are and what you've done. And then there's those of you here who aren't Christians. 
And I want to encourage you that in Jesus, there is a joy that's so, it, it, it passes into all of our circumstances, whether we are sexually fulfilled or not. Jesus can meet our deepest needs and give us a kind of strength and affirmation that allows us in relationships to be so content that we can serve others, that we can care for others, whether we're married to them or not. Um, and this is, there's a joy here that's better than sex. There's a joy here that's better than alcohol. There's a joy better than drugs, better than food, better than anything else in the world like that comes from knowing and walking with God. And I want to invite you to come and to believe in Jesus and experience that. For us today, like these, like what does renewal look like? What does it look like for us to grow? I think it starts by asking God for forgiveness. It starts by confessing to God how far away we've moved from his design in whatever way that we have. Um, The way back to God is in our heart and our mind telling God that we're sorry for what we've done. That's where it starts. Um, If you're married, this should be an encouragement for you to have more sex, clearly. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It's, it's actually understand what sex is. Sex is for intimacy. It's for relationship. It's for connection. And so go deeper with your spouse. Pursue your spouse again. I mean, ask yourself, like husbands, what could you do today that would show your wives that one flesh means more than just sex? Like, what could you do today that would show her um, that you love her. Do you do something around the house, maybe? Doesn't have to be something super complicated, just to get you started. Um, wives, what about you? Um, what could you appreciate about your husband? The temptation is always to criticize. It's always easy to criticize. It's easy to cut down. What could you do that would appreciate and respect him today? Um, The more you connect to each other outside of sex, the better sex becomes. Um, For those of you who are dating, you're single and you're dating, I just want to encourage you, understand that this is what sex is and don't give yourself away physically. Sex is in all of its forms. It's, It's God's gift to those who are willing to earn it by making a lifelong commitment. Um, You are worth more than that. Don't cheapen yourself um, by giving yourself away prematurely. Um, From Counterfeit Gods, the book by Tim Keller, he quotes a woman who struggled constantly needing to be in a relationship, and she got to a place because Jesus met her in her deepest need, met that part of her heart that needed that affirmation, and she got to a place where she could say this. She could say to a guy, you may turn out to be a great guy, and maybe even my husband, but you can never, ever be my life. Only Christ is my life. Tim said that when she began to do this, she got her life back. The spiritual discipline gave her the ability to set boundaries and make good choices and eventually to love a man for himself, not simply to use men to bolster her own self-image. And then the other thing, the last thing for all of us, is that I want to encourage you to pursue the power of a more explosive love than lust. Okay? 
You can't actually conquer lust. You can't conquer the desires that you have for sex outside of marriage by themselves. You can't just try to kill them and starve them because they don't go away. What you need to do is you need to replace that lust with a more explosive love. With a more explosive love, um, you need to want something more than your own pleasure. Okay, you need to want something more than your own way. Usually in the Bible, in Ephesians 4, it tells us not just to stop doing stuff, but it tells us not just to put things off, but to put things on. Um, It says in Ephesians 4, don't steal, but instead work with your hands. Work with your hands in a way that would actually give you the ability not just to not steal, but to have enough money so that you can actually give that extra money to someone else. And so instead of stealing and taking what belongs to others for yourself and hoarding it selfishly, Instead of doing that, work with your hands, work hard, do a job so that you have not just enough money to provide for yourself, but enough to be able to give the joy of giving to someone else, right? And so you're not just taking something off, but you're putting something on. You need a more explosive love. And so in this area of of lust, you're never going to be free until you find something that you want even more, okay? And so for at least for me, the desire to serve Jesus. I can remember that I love that more than I love my lust. When I'm tempted toward porn, when I'm tempted toward um, bad intimacy, when I'm tempted to pursue or to lust or to see and to feast on things with my eyes, if I can remember, wait a second, I actually love Jesus more than I love how I'm going to feel when this is over. Like there's strength in that. There's strength in my more explosive love for Jesus. After all that he's done for me, thinking about him living his entire life, denying himself, and he did that for me. He did that to show him that he loves me, that he hung on a cross, hanging there so that my sins would be paid for, so that I might be forgiven. When I think about that love, I think, man, that love compels me. Man, that love compels me. Part of the point of this series, the goodness of God, is that life is not about toning down and repressing the desires that we have. It's channeling it, it's focusing it, and it's turning it loose onto something that's beautiful, that's good, that's true, that's pure. When we pursue God in that way, we pursue Jesus, we pursue sexual faithfulness, when we pursue our spouses, when we pursue... Um, holiness and purity in a dating relationship. When we pursue these things, there's beauty that comes. We end up connecting with God. We become strengthened by God himself. His power works in us. And we will find that things that we once wanted, we don't need anymore. This is what Jesus is aiming for. This is the kind of explosive love that will connect us to God that'll help us to have solid, life-giving friendships with others. And ultimately, it'll give us a life that can show the world that there's a better way. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, rescue us from ourselves. Save us from, oh God, the darkness that enslaves us. Set us free by your love for us. 
And let your love explode in our hearts so that we want to devote ourselves to you and to you first and foremost. Give us your power and your strength. Renew our hearts and minds. For those who are married here, Father, renew their marriages and their commitments to each other. Let today be a day of new beginnings. And for those who are single, God, I pray that they would devote themselves to you and recommit their lives to honoring you and doing it in community. We pray this so that you would be honored, so that you would receive glory, so that we would have something real to offer to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.